The Sinai is a desert in Egypt, about a third the size of Florida. There, an ambitious project is underway to regreen it. The project consists of three parts. One is to rehabilitate Lake Bardowell at the northern tip of the Sinai. Two is to actually regreen the Sinai, and there they will use this, do this by using the sediment from the Lake Bardowell after they've rehabilitated that. And three, they hope to shift the wind patterns over the Sinai because of the regreening efforts, which then affects evapotranspiration, which affects the water cycles, and which will then bring more rain to that area and also to neighboring areas. I'm here today with Tish van der Hoven, and he's working on a project to regreen the Sinai. So welcome, Tish. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. Nice having you. Great to have you. Yeah. Um, do you want to say a little bit about how you got into this project um, to regreen the Sinai, or a little bit about your background? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the uh, yeah. Let me start with the background. Yeah, no, I did coastal morphology. So um, when you're from the Netherlands, uh, um, and when you have parents that sail, you you get in um, very quickly. You come into the dredging world. In other words, the Dutch is being dredged. Lots of the land is reclaimed already from the 11th century. So, so playing with sand is a little bit um, um, uh, in our DNA. And it was actually my grandfather that advised me to to pick that um, study, that direction. And I started to study it and I loved it. And I did coastal morphology. So that's really the trend, the sand transport in estuaries and lagoons and et cetera. So I started to work again with um, with um, now, I think it's, it's the biggest dredging contractor in the world is Belgium. It, it's close to uh, like, like you got two Belgium, two Dutch, Sauvignon, Boscalis, Jan de Nul and Dredging International. And I, I, I loved it to work in, in, um, in a mixed culture um, 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 area. So that's why I started to work with, with the Belgians. And I love the Belgians in that sense. It's always funny because normally you would say that the Dutch are good at innovating and the Belgians are good at optimizing. Um, at a certain moment, I got a call. It was 19 January 2016 from the formal um, project manager of the Suez Canal from, from our dredging company. And he said to me, please listen, I got on this farewell party of, of the Suez. I got this um, official from the, the Egyptian government coming up to me and starting to talk to me about the Arabic Spring and all the sad thing that was happening um, or happened in the Middle East. And that they were searching for to do something positive back to the Bainuidi people in the North Sinai and that the fish was disappearing. And if a dredging company didn't know any solution how the fish could come back, and via, via um, I was known within the company to come up with alternative designs. Malik Bukabush, um, I'm, I'm still humble that he called me that day. Uh, he called me up. He said, please listen. They said, I have to call you. And he started to talk about this lagoon. And it was salt. And I said, oh, okay, okay, okay. So does it have inlets? Yeah, I know it has inlets. So right, man, let's open up the door. And he said, okay, do it. If you, if, if you think you know you, um, what you want to do, I'll give you a bit of internal budget and go for it. Yeah, and from that day on, the site I never went out of my life. <laughs> so we started to, to very quickly model it. And I'm, as being a morphologist, I'm, I'm used to calculate 
engineer with natural systems. Um, so natural system is pretty common for me. And tidal prism, sort of water that goes in and out of the lagoon when a tidal wave passes the coast. Yeah, that, that's that, that's me. <laughs> so we very quickly started to, to set up some numerical models and just got the feeling what we could do with this lagoon. And then I never forget, you got this right-winged um, 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 Dutch politi political guy shouting that a refugee would cost the Dutch government 53,000 euros um, a year. And they are normally always saying, no, no, we, sh we should uh, help the people in their own country, blah, 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 blah. And uh, with other words, um, um, don't take care of the refugees. And I was like, oh, fuck you, I get you there, man. <laughs> we got 53,000 euros. If I can achieve a fisher job over there, the man will not flee. So Europe, you got to pay for that. So then it started to to buzz a little bit how to holistically start building up such a business plan. But it happened the same with the fish, right? So whether we, we went from algae to mullets to sea bass to sole, and I wasn't at all an ecologist, but I realized that the the basic principles of ecology are, are man, they look so much common to how to design a breakwater. It's all with, with, with semi-ferric formulas, with data, with interpretations, finding the relations, etc. So very quickly, we were able to build a, a model uh, or a process model based upon our a numerical model. And it was crazy. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Why don't we do this all over the planet? Um, um, and then, of course, we started, uh, we, we had some support from University of Aachen and some aquatic people. And in principle, you said, these, uh, in principle, you're right. But if you want to follow the rules of ecology, you have to start setting up these complex models and blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, no, leave the models. They're just, they're way too complex. And I'm not yet on that level. So started to, to create, together with Malik, a bit of a business plan around it. I just I want just to step back just to give the larger picture. So, so you you started out uh, with this project to regreen the sign up. Now, now the larger picture comes. Huh? Now the larger picture comes. Okay, cool. You give me give me one sec because okay. then we realized by doing it, it was not only opening the door, but it was dredging tidal gullies. And the moment we started to do that, I was touching the subca soils. And the subca soils, um, if you're from the Netherlands you know that marine sediments are very fertile the moment you have flushed them because that's why the Netherlands is such a big agricultural producer. So what we started to realize, wait a minute, if we dredge those soils, we're not going to throw them away because they cost a lot to dump them offshore. We've got to start using to regreen them. And of course, um, um, by saying it, we started to look from the lagoon way more uh, into the desert. And you see all of these dried up rivers um, um, from Google Earth. And then just as, a, as an engineer, I was like, wait a minute. Okay, so if we can use these sediments, we will be able to get the soil out of it. Um, it are the organics that are required to grow the plants. It are the organics that naturally manage um, uh, um, the water. So what we need to do, we need to use those sediments to start regreening. And then... Um, Somebody came into me, it was actually it was, it was a, a long side story, I won't 
tell too much about it was it was a client of me that that um who gave me a bit of time to work on this and he said to me i will come every tuesday night at your place and he so i was i was working with the sediments and thinking about regreening creating microclimates um, um cooling the air um um creating a little bit of a water cycle and he came up to me and he showed me the green gold documentary of john Liu. And uh, I, first of all, I didn't want to see it like, dude, I'm too busy. I got to do this. But um, um, but a friend of mine put it on um, at night and I watched it for 35 times in a row. And it's John Lee who's saying at a certain moment. Or first, Jeff Loughton, what we need to do remains relatively simple. It's just hard work. And it was John Lee that said, if we can restore large scale damaged ecosystems, why don't we fucking do it? And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> because when I started to look at the Lisbon, though, man, those amounts of soils are peanuts for the dredging industry. We can do this large scale. So why the fuck are we not doing it? <laughs> why don't we change the purpose of our industry and start to do it? So when I saw that documentary later on, and I'm not a writer, I started to make drawings. A very practical. Yeah, I just want to step back just a little bit. So the lowest plain is a is actually a, a desert area in China that's about the size of Belgium, and uh, and so the Chinese regreened it. And John Liu, um, it's already uh, decided. Did, a, from, did, did yeah. a documentary, yeah, of the whole process. And then the Sinai is is a bit smaller than Belgium, right? It's about maybe the third the size of Florida, I think. Um, that's thirty five thousand square kilometers, which flows um, into the Mediterranean. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and just to give a little bit of the geography, so the Sinai is on the northern um, west east end of of Africa, and then it kind of joins into the the western part of Asia in the Middle East. There, so yeah, it's really the tectonic plate which was attached to Africa when Africa was was drifting towards Euro Euro Asia. It was the Levant tectonic plate, which partly is Lebanon now. And partly is that Sinai that really bounced into Eurasia. So it's really the bridge from Africa to Asia. Absolutely. Yeah. And right and now, uh, it's, it's, it's mainly just desert, just sand, and uh, with a kind of lake at the northern tip, right? And that's the thing you're beginning to dredge or looking at how you yeah. restore that lake and then take that lake stuff, the, the sediment, and, and put it onto the, the sands of the Sinai to regreen it. Is that... Yeah. Yeah, so it's if you so 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 that bridge area of the Sinai Peninsula is sixty thousand square kilometers in size, and on the northern part, roughly thirty-five thousand square kilometers is flowing to the Mediterranean, um, and then you get from Israel to um, to the Nile actually, uh, to the Nile Delta, um, uh, and there you used to have the Suez Canal, um, or you still have the Suez Canal, of course. And and by the wheel is really on the on the western uh, it's on on the eastern side of the Suez Canal so on the western side um, west north uh, of the uh, the Sinai Peninsula yeah and it's completely barren rock so um, um, she most likely turned in between seven to seven thousand to four thousand years before Christ uh, that's when she really became a desert um, for the last time because uh, she was green and became a desert quite a lot of times in um, uh, in history. And now she's she's very barren um, in the in, in the highlands um, of our watershed. There's maybe twenty to thirty millimeters of rain, which normally actually falls um, 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 in a flash flood. 
like every couple of years. And um, um, the coastal areas do have more rain. It's like 100 to sometimes 200 millimeters, depends on where you are. Uh, um, uh, and it's a very, very barren place because actually all the real soils have been flushed away. And many of these soils ended up into the lagoon. So what you see there is that the lagoon used to be 20 to 40 meters deep, 600 square kilometers in size. Um, and now it's only 1.3 meters deep on average. And if you, if you would drill a, a core into it, the first five to 10 meters, depending on where you are, will be the subca soils. So very mineral and nutrient rich, um, a silty clay, sometimes 40% uh, clay um, uh, sediments. And underneath, there's another 10 to, to 30 meters of um, 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 sandy beach, sandy sand. And that's actually sand coming from the Mediterranean. And, and the subcars are really the, um, uh, the eroded soils. Um, I normally call them the indigenous soil um, uh, um, um, from the old vegetation cover of the Sinai Peninsula. And so there you see the whole Sinai Peninsula reaching from the Nile Delta all the way up to the Dead Sea. Um, um, so the whole Levant tectonic plate reaches further up there, up north, and goes all the way down, right? And here you can see that very sharp white edge, which is really the wind erosion um, when the wind falls from um, the Mediterranean into uh, the Red Sea. And here she's highlighted what we're doing. The main city there is El Aris, and this is um, um, uh, by the wheel. And if I would show you uh, so here you get a little bit of a view of by the wheel itself where you currently have two uh, inlets and again it's um as being an engineer we like to um hind cast our calculations um and um so this is the two the lagoon currently as she is with the two manipulated dredged inlets already from the 1920s um so it's one on the eastern side and one on the, the midwestern side uh, and there you get the, um, the full area. You can see that she's very, very shallow as we speak. The current inlets are actually dredged there in 2019, um, a bit on, inspired on the work. And here you get a kind of a, a plan view with a cross section. What, what I'm just trying to explain to you is that you got the top layers of the subca approximately five to 10 meters deep. And you got the other, the beach sandy soils, which lots of shells coming from the Mediterranean. And um, just to get you a rough idea of numbers, uh, the subca soils are approximately 2.5 billion cubic meters in volume and are ranging in organic matters from um, three to up to 15%. So they're very high on organic matter, um, but there are many other nutrients. What we actually see is that the real nutrient missing is phosphor, uh, but it's still a bit into, um, um, and so we're gonna, uh, which so when you spread this um, sediment up onto the, you don't spread the, it kind of the slope. Uh, which is the which is the you main? You spread it on the slope. Eh? You don't spread it on the slope. Eh? Wait, let, let me okay. double check it. Now what we did together with um, for the people who don't know, um, Google John Todd. He's one of my normally I call him one of my Jedi's, but he is an amazing ecological pioneer. There you go. Um, uh, the man standing here on the right. Um, um, and he started already in the hippie times and he created the eco machine and there you can see all of his work and he actually started to create aquatic food webs to purify water but also sediments 
ranging from ecologically disordered water up to heavy chemical pollution. And it's really bizarre what the man does. And it, uh, he purifies water with photosynthesis. So he actually um, um, uh, purifies the water and he builds biodiversity. It's, it's really amazing what he did. And um, um, John Liu uh, got me into contact with him. I think I met him in 2017 in October. And since then, um, ah, he's one of my um, close friends. Yeah, I've seen some of these tanks, these sequence of tanks. So you kind of clean the wastewater by putting it through a whole sequence of yeah, biologically filled. But, but, but what he does goes further around. Like, like many of us are used, I used to be the same, is that you design something because you want to, um, you want to get something out of the system you build. That's not what he does. He builds functional ecosystems. So he builds an environment, a functional ecosystem can build herself and you don't ask you don't design nature you let nature design herself and she will gives you whatever she wants to give and it's really the, the man the man is mind-blowing if you if you speak to him and he came up with this very easy concept when i took him over in in november 2017 we set up a convention with Li Rei, that's uh, the guy who did uh, the Lus Plateau in china uh, with Tim Flannery, John Liu, John Todd, um, Daniel Halsey, many of the different people that got attached to the project. And John Todd came up with this very easy system. And he said, man, you get salt and you get marine sediment. Um, so what you need to do is you need to start building an aquatic food web which can feed the people, put a geodesic dome on top of it. And in the morning you tap it and it will rain. It's just what, of course, the normal function of water is in an ecosystem. But it will educate the people. Um, the rain will fall, will infiltrate in the soils, and that can grow then trees, deep enough roots, and after a while, you can change it. I said, John, I'm loving it, but I'm an engineer. Let us start working together. Let me do, create a calculation um, uh, method behind your intuition. But let so, me then edit and scale it up. And that's what so we started to do. So those geodesic domes that we just saw, those are what you put on the Sinai, right? And then the water in them? Wait, 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 wait. wait. This, oh, is, okay. this is where the idea started with John. Talk. Okay. And John thought was actually you have to move them every two and a half years. And I said, I'm loving it. But um, this is not what I can use as a scale-up towards my dredging industry. So what I'm started to do together with John thought, build first in the window, then uh, on the farm, uh, so we started to scale up as eco-oasises, started to calculate how much water can we produce, how can we ecologically order the water with an aquatic ecosystem so it fertilizes and let the plants grow much quicker. What do we actually kind of halophytes do we need to select and use to grow on the subcast soils? And how can we trigger the diatoms, which are the crucial um, uh, um, algae there in the beginning for the fish? to grow them. And that's what we started to do. And this ended up now here on the laboratory, which I have is just 500 meters away from where I am right now, and where we build a geodesic dome inspired by John Todd, but with John Todd together also upgraded with a soil um, basin underneath. And this is actually a laboratory, or I call it a physical model test, um, because I'm, I'm an engineer and I don't need to understand everything. I, um, I need to um, um, 
be able to predict everything. Uh, and what we do here is with all different habitats and with different uh, aquatic feed trains, we can build ecological function in the combination of an atmosphere, a land, and an aquatic um, um, ecosystem. So it's, it's kind of an incubator what you need to do outside. And this we scaled up to a principal farm of 17 hectares. So we build it on a farm, one single farmer level, how you can use marine sediments step-by-step step with the geodesic dome, produce fresh water, have different trains of salinity in it, and upgrade your marine sediments by plant ecological succession towards fresh um, um, sediments and plants, which you can then replant outside. So what we created, this is on a farmer level, but we also, we got a 17 hectare one, which is a little bit more industrialized, where you can produce many, many different types of plants species, attached to livable soils. Wait, in 17 Which, hectares, is that all covered by this geodesic dome or not? Oh. No, 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 only a part of it. Because what the geodesic dome does, she produces fresh water and the fresh water and the water vapor protects the algae to grow in the tanks. So you have, uh, you, you gotta realize you could like, the, the first part is really aquatic um, and atmospheric. So you produce water and you produce fish and uh, like an, an aquaponic, where you also produce the fish food, and the aquaponic becomes the fertilizer of your marine sediments. And the marine sediments you dredge, they're very salt, and step by step, with back currents, you're going to um, desalinate the soils with different types of plant vegetation growing there. So you start from halophytes, you go to grasses, you go to potatoes, you end up with, with trees or whatever plants you need. And with it, you produce fish, seaweeds, etc. So you produce a very diverse food platform for the people working there. And step by step, you um, upgrading uh, the marine sediments towards the indigenous soils. They used to be um, towards the, the fresh biospheres. You can start replanting. And this is how we're going to do it um, uh, uh, most likely on a larger scale. And what we then do, I, I don't know if I have it here. Let me double check. Yeah, here. This is actually the one I'm currently building in the Sinai together with Nueva. This is the whole process of how you can start dredging the soils from the lagoon, transport them hydraulically, uh, stockpiling them in big segregation ponds where you can already start uh, determining the different um, minerals and nutrient loadings you would like to have. So that's where you do the soil engineering. And you go from halophytes to grass crop trees, um, how to upgrade these soils by producing the food. And you can do it. So I'm just How trying to understand where the soil goes. Does the soil go into these glass tanks or does it spread onto the ground? And no, then the ground, the ground is covered by a geodesic dome. No, 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 no. You have your, here what you see, you have your geodesic domes with your aquatic tanks in there, right? And you have large slip fields. I don't have the, the, the farm level in here, but you have large slip field segregation ponds where you build like most likely what we now think is 30 to 50 centimeters uh, um, of, uh, um, of, of segregated uh, set, uh, settled soils, marine sediments. And that's where you start to grow halophytes, increase the permeability, have the soil by compacted and step-by-step step have the different plants on it. And the well, I'm just sorry, where, where does the soil go? Is it go in the tanks or is it go in the mm -hmm. ground of the judas? I just segregation ponds. So you have to see really, really levees here. 
So uh, this is this is also another design, but this is so take the tanks out of it. So you and the yeah, but it's also with the dome. So you get Misty. I said don't have it here. It just oh, really okay. So it's it's, it's spread out on the floor of the dome. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah, but not in the dome. Huh? Oh, it's outside the dome. Yeah, yes, in the larger farms. Uh -huh. uh, so main, mainly the community farms. That's where it's outside, and you have shade nets on top of it because the domes are way too expensive. Okay. And it just costs too much material. And what we what we actually then going to do? So you're going to see like out of your 17 hectare pilot farm, which we're currently designing to start building there, hopefully soon, because we signed the contract. Um, uh, is is from the 17 hectares, we approximately two hectares are um, geodesic domes with aquatic food webs in it of different salinity levels. So there you have algae, mussels, fish. And from the fish, that water goes to your silt basins outside. So where you have your marine sediments in thin layers covered with shade nets and have the plants grow. And you flush the soils with the water coming from the aquatic tanks. And you do that step by step because you want to desalinate it. But the problem is if you start desalinating it, um, you also flush out the nutrients, but then the desalinated water, so a little bit of salty water with the nutrients, flow back again to the aquatic tanks, so where they can grow algae. So it's it's a complete cycled system where we don't lose anything. Now it goes further because here you see the first Magara Mountain, which is approximately fifty kilometers down south of um, um, of by the wheel, and there you see, you can see all the old river valleys. And what we're going to do is if you dredge materials, these are like the big machines, right? And the moment you have the material dredged in a suspension, you don't want to let it settle down again because then it costs, again, quite a lot of energy. So what we're currently designing, and again, it's not up to me to decide if the world wants to do this. It's up to me to come up with an engineering solution how you can do it. So later on, we can all think if we want to do it. But now the whole concept is if we dredge it, we hydraulically transport it. It's by far the cheapest way um, 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 to transport a sand over a larger system. You're going to hydraulically transport it into the mountain ranges. And into the mountain ranges, you create large stockpiles where you can stockpile the marine sediments and have the, um, um, use the aquatic trains, what I just showed you, to harvest the phosphor out of the seawater. You will transport it in low densities to reduce the damage on your pipelines. And there you will have big sediment basins high up in your mountains. And there you let the sun evaporate um, the salt water a little bit further to increase her density. Now you gotta understand that the footprint of salt water um, of water vapor is very important because salt water requires more energy to evaporate, but she has a lower cloud condensation level. So using salt water vapor in mountains to start restoring a water cycle is very, very interesting. But not only that, because if we dredge the soils and pump them up there and let her sit a while to evaporate, after with the aquatic trains we took all the nutrients in, we let the water flow back to the ocean and she regenerates again her own energy okay you spread her in growing beds where you grow plants and you later on you pick those livable soils with the plant and that's what you start replanting in the desert it's not 
I have to be careful with by, by not by, by not um, um, hurting other people, but I'm not going to spread at all any sediments somewhere because it simply doesn't work. You need to revitalize the sediments and use ecological succession to be able to do it. But if you do it with all natural water produced ourselves, so we're not dependent of rainfall, you generate a very powerful um, engine. And if you find the right spots, which Miamian um, supported us a lot with, um, 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 we found the right mountains to start building fog nets, to start building the saltwater treatment um, um, settlement areas, have additional evaporation, and from there we're building it. And it looks just, it's hard work, lots of work. Which you bring livable soils with a plant living in there, with the plants you grow for like a year yeah. or a couple of trees, that's what you're going to plant. You don't spread everybody that tells you that you can dredge marine sediments and you spray it out of the desert. Sorry, that's not how it works. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just trying to understand. So, so you actually grow the plants and then and then and then take the whole. You plants grow the plants. You take then... them with livable soils with okay. with traditional water, and then you can replant it. And if you look at it, here you got, for example. So we're working with a, a couple of partners. So if you have these big stock areas, this is where you dump your marine sediment. You can connect them with little windmills that don't have a dynamo but have a, a hydraulic pump in top. So they create pressure head. You can transport via smaller pipelines your marine sediments to little farm sites where communities on your fog, uh, forest areas can start building indigenous forests. And th this is how the whole concept works. So we need the people to do it. Regreening is not an industrial thing. It's love. It's humans. It's hands you need. You can use an industrial skill to support the people. That's why we normally call it resource-based dredging. But I'm personally, I don't believe in any industrialized way of planting um, 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 seeding or whatever it is. It's, it's people that got to do it. So what we did is we generated a concept via John Todd, which we call the eco wages, and you can transform her in many different shapes you want. Uh, but in principle, it's the fact that you create minor, mini ecosystems. So you use all the positive feedback loops within a complete ecosystem in the atmosphere, the land, and the aquatic to increase microbial communities, to revitalize the sediments. And that's what you, with livable plants, going to plant on the right spot where they can sequester water vapor from your atmosphere. And that's these are the basic principles. Now, last but not least, um, uh, I'm currently just wrapping up the whole um, flow line is because many of the people um, what 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 we came up with was a complete natural way so we're producing our own water the farmers are producing their own water um, and that's way how you can start planting but of course water then is the limiting factor in the desert and then i started to met, meet guys because the whole concept of what we're trying to do is the weather makers is give a new purpose to existing industries. It's the oil industry, it's the dredging industry. Many of the people that are working in these companies don't want to destroy nature. They're just fed into this money-making machine where um, everybody doesn't give a fuck what they do, but they all want to change. 
that's what that was myself as well in the dredging company. So what we started to realize is that if we can use existing old industries in a positive way, if we change the purpose, you can do funny things. And then these guys came up to me of a very big Dutch shipping company that had lots of oil tankers, which um, were making a loss, but they couldn't sell them because too many people were trying to sell these boats. So the financial investors had a big problem. So they came up with a concept inspired by a shaman from Greenland. And they, he told them, you have to do something with the melting green water because the melting green water, when it hits the ocean, it causes an ecological disaster. 10 million cubic meters per second. Get it into your head. It's crazy if you think about the numbers. Why don't we get oil tankers, which do not do a lot now, you can break them down on a Turkish beach and, um, and um, create another ecological disaster. But you let them sail for a while. And let them sail the melting water, which is better than the Dutch drinking water. Not only that, it's very high on silica. And if you believe some spiritual people around, water has a memory. It's livable water. She was not chemically treated. No, she was freezed. And now she's melting. So what we're currently working on is um, getting some 15 to 20 crude oil tankers as a concept again. It's not up to me to decide if we want to do it, but we're creating the way what we can do is have 15 to 20 crude oil tankers of 250 million liters of water sailing there up and down using an ISPN, so just a floating buoy, where we can use the dredging pipelines, where we can just fill the old natural aquifers, which sometimes still get fed by rainwater, and fill them up with this water. The cool thing about water is it's, um, you cannot really do a lot of corruption with it in that sense, and we can just create strategic drinkwater supplies very high levels of silica, so you can purify her a couple of times. So you can grow lots of diatoms in it. And uh, we just found this amazing accelerator. And it's not at all that costly. And you don't need to build those stupid desalization plants. So there's not really a reason, technically, that we cannot do it. Shitloads of work. Hard work. Way better than a war, if you ask me. Um, 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 so it's just a matter of our species, of our principally funny world. What do we want? Because if we want it, we can use this very destructive industry of the oil, of the minings, of the dredging. Man, we can use them to do what they did in the Lisbeth. Hey, I want to just ask you about, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Roger Savory's work. He had, he'd been trying to re-green some deserts in Africa and Australia. And the way he he's does it, older, he created, right? huh? He's a bit older, right? I think uh, I he's the him. son of Alan Savory. So he's a bit younger, I think. Ah, no, I don't know. No, I, I so, know Alan Savory, but I don't know his son. So, um, so he's trying to create what's called a biological carpet. So they get lots of cow dung. And in the cow dung, they eat, you know, a lot of food. And then they 
they have the cows in a certain area in the desert-like area. And then that whole, the dung and the urine create this west moist environment. And underneath there's some fungi spores in yeah. the dung. And so that, so it starts kind of growing and creating. So, and so the, the dung kind of shields the whole area from the sunlight, the ultraviolet rays. And so it can start building the soil that way. And then they grow the plants. And I was just wondering what, how is that, that approach how co contrast with yours or that approach could also maybe work in your area or uh, yeah but a bit later on in the, in the time scale mm -hmm. we definitely have it that's what that's what we normally also have I, i'm lo loving the work from ellen savory yeah and don't get me wrong at all but but you got to realize that this sinai desert is a bit of a different desert than just an arid african landscape there is no soil anymore here. Mm -hmm. all of the soil has been flushed away so here, what you need to do, you really got to start bringing soils. Though, on the other hand, on, on, on really the low parts of it, uh, so we start with the lagoon, start with the wetlands, then jump into the mountains. But on the lower parts, where there still is sand, uh, there you can really start working, of course, with, uh, with cattle and um, um, uh, start to re-green it from that sense. But I do believe that that the degradation of the Sinai is a bit more worse than what um, uh, Alan Savory, um, because I don't know the work of his son, um, and they used to work for him. But, it, but, but I fully agree with them, and I think it, it's one of my last slides. Uh, I normally always say that um, that's definitely inspired by his thing. Yeah, there you go. Um, I use the animals as well. With other words, um, you know, I will make it big. Um, what I learned from Alan Savory is that um, the, the animal kingdom, like John Todd says in the aquatic part, is going there, is there to support you. Don't build a machine that can plow the ground. Uh, you use your cattle uh, in principle. Well, up here is in the beginning, as being an engineer, many of the ecologists people trying to tackle me that we were a little bit crazy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and man, you cannot, geez, uh, you have to realize if you're going to regreen that desert and you pick your plans, you've got to manipulate it. Because which plans are you going to pick? I don't know, man. Why don't we think a little bit differently? Why don't we just look? That's what we're currently uh, rolling out foodie with uh, Mohamed Sakaria. Why don't we look? She's the biggest bird migration route on our planet. All those birds follow the wetlands in their surroundings. So the only thing we need to do, how can we attract the birds again? And the birds will bring the seeds. And the mm. birds, or it's nature that will build, fully inspired by Alan Savory, uh, their own robustness. We don't need to start doing it ourselves. It's, it's, it's uh, sometimes I have to laugh about it because the way we think we can manipulate ecosystems, it's just, it shows us, or it shows me the lack mm. of understanding we fully have of our natural world. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I get the birds. So the so if you're building the wetlands and the greenery, then the birds will come kind of and with their seeds. Yeah, we're just the tracking. Um, um, we, we, we're really now tracking all, all the what you see here, all the different species, and 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 uh, this is just a rough map, of course. But you have lots of the wetlands where they're um, um, where they're approaching in the nearby areas and where they're flying to it. And on those wetlands, we're just making plant lists and um, 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 trying to to figure out just on. Um, on a bit of big data exercises, um, what the selected plants will be to attract them. And when you attract them, they will start building their own real business. Yeah. In the desert sand in the Sinai right now, is there any seeds at all, or is there just no seeds there? Yeah, the, 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 I've never been there uh, yet. 
Um, mm. That will now change soon, I guess. Um, but no, in, 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 in the lowlands, you still have, of course, because there's still some vegetation. But the majority, there's no sand. On the lowlands, there's sand, but really going up there, it's, it's barren rock. Eh? It all flushed away. So no, there, there, um, there will not be that many seeds at all. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so, I mean, like, I mean, if you're going to cover with soil um, the, the, the sign, I mean, that's a large area, right? So the lake probably doesn't provide enough soil for the whole area. So Again, we're not going to cover the, the, uh, the desert with a layer of, of sediments. Uh, there's 2.5 billion cubic meters. Huh? Mm -hmm. It's massive amount of soils we have it's sufficient to approximately restore we're just we're just running all of our data driven models step by step we know it further i'm just looking if i can um there's only uh, uh you don't need to regreen everything she will start propagating by herself uh, but it looks like now that we're uh, approximately thinking on one third of that thirty-five thousand square kilometers to regreen mm -hmm. Um, uh, on the kind of, um, I'm inspired by tiny forest. I don't know what, what's the international name of it, but it's exactly from uh, Miyaki uh, Forest. Yeah, and and what what we are looking into is really having a dense um, plantation of those different plants. Uh, but mainly now we're just running the methodologies. Uh, um, and I always got inspired by this podcast of 13 minutes to the moon. Don't get me wrong. When when your president at a certain moment said, "Let's land on the moon." They didn't know upfront exactly how they would do every step. We we know approximately the way ahead and how we need to do it, but we're going to discover it, of course. So the majority of what we're now doing is developing methodologies on how you can figure out the best way how to do it. This is where Li Rei, um, the guy from China from the Lispato, who did the, um, the first really um, uh, um, parts of the, the rest restoration of the Lispato how we set up methodologies to learn the best way how to do it. So if you ask me, um, that's normally also the three different tracks. I'm pretty sure, um, no, I'm fully sure how to do the restoration of the lagoon. I'm fully sure how to revitalize marine sediment and build um, livable, fresh biosphere of it. We still have to figure out in detail how to fully roll that out on the larger scale. Right. But I think that the, the whole, um, the savory idea is that the dung can kind of cover up some of the, you know, the desert sand. So it kind of, it would shield it from the sun. So then maybe in the Sinai. But, but, it's, it's, but where, he, where he is normally working, that's real different area than here. Eh? If you go here up into the mountains, mm -hmm. again, let me show you back. There is no desert. Eh? Normally, when people, uh, uh, this is what you call a desert. Mm -hmm. This is only a very limited part of the Sinai. And the majority of it is barren rock. Oh, right. So you need to even. Uh... Yeah, that's why right. you need everything is eroded. That's all the lagoon. Mm -hmm. You can see it. All the, the whiteish, the, the majority of it, there's, there's almost everything is flushed away. Right. And only here, that lighter part, that is really what we normally call a desert. Uh -huh. What Alan Savory does, with all due respect, it's amazing what he does, don't get me wrong, but that they work in more easier conditions 
and then this little part. To be quite honest, if you look at me, if you if you read our perspective paper, which you can find on our website, uh, I'm pretty sure that if, if, if we analyze the historical data, this is where the last African human period ended so dramatically. It's the Sinai that fell. So in principally, she is the oldest desert in North Africa. Cool. And then uh, I think, yeah, okay. So you have like uh, three tracks. So you have the you have the kind of uh, the lake uh, redoing and then the regreening the desert and the hydrological cycle. Okay, cool. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the hydrological cycle and how that yeah, the, the, well, the, the hydrological cycle is what we're currently doing based upon, I don't know if the people know him, but Mia Mian, for me, is also one of my Jedis. But he is a, uh, he was the head of the um, climate research of the European Commission. And um, you normally summarize his work as what are budgets, what are soil is the wound, the vegetation is the midwife. With other words, it's a bit of a, a sharp one. Climate change is not that much about carbon dioxide. It's much more about what? Don't get me wrong. It has to do with carbon dioxide. But the biggest driver of it is water. And what he explains, it's the vegetation cover that grows so much quicker if you have proper animal life um, living there. It's the vegetation cover um, that naturally manage your water. Harvest of water, evaporates your water. And where I actually showed, it's just outside the reach here because it's within Valencia, is that your evaporation on sea is your cloud trigger former and approximately uh, is two thirds of the water vapor concentration you need to get rain. And when the water enters from the ocean into your land, in the Mediterranean basin, it's approximately 14 grams when it's 26 degrees, you need an additional seven grams to let it rain on a mountain range of approximately 2,000 meters high. I just tried to summarize his work, what he did in Valencia. Yeah, um, yeah, I actually interviewed him on a- You reduce that evaporation, you don't reach the 21 grams, and then you get wind going up. And because in Spain, you got a large watershed on the Atlantic and on the Mediterranean, the air goes up and being transported to a higher atmospheric layer, where we know that we got this onion. And then you lost it, that's what he saw. That's why he predicted all the floodings in Eastern Europe and everybody called him crazy, but everything happened. Well, the funny thing about the sign that the first time I traveled up to him, I had to meet him via John Liu. And he's, first of all, a very funny character. Um, he showed to me, um, let me see if I got the map. Here it is. So his work was there. You got the continental divide. And very simply said, a continental divide is a mountain range high enough. And by that elevation, you're losing temperature, so you're increasing condensation, so you, your water droplets starts to fall, so you change weather system. Very simply said. That's what a continental divide means. And he said, dude, you got one on the Sinai. With other words, there used to be, because this map is being based upon 5,000 years old, DNA data by the UN, um, et cetera, et cetera. There used to be a continental divide on the Sinai. And normally it says that light blue area, which you see here, so it's the southern parts of Europe and the northern parts of Africa, fully connected here with the Nile River. 
is that 70 to 80% of the water that evaporates on the Mediterranean falls back into that light blue area. If the water cycles were still functioning. But a water cycle got broken and very quickly. And this is what we showed here because this became a desert. What happens every day, approximately 70% of the days a year, these kind of winds start. And lots of the meteorological people look at the bad weather systems, but I'm a morphologist. So what we started to do, um, together with Miamian, understand what he meant. And what Miamian did with his work, he separated low pressure systems coming from the Mediterranean or the Atlantic Sea, and he really isolated his local water cycle events in Valencia. That's what we did here. Up here, they're like approximately 70% of the time. They're sun-driven winds. So if the sun comes up, you get the thermal, um, the thermal, yes, you get the thermal flow coming up from the land. The land heats up, so the, the air heats up, so the air starts to rise. So you create a low pressure just above your land. And that's what's pulling the sea breeze in. A little bit later on the day, your mountain ranges got heated, and that wind is after the sea breeze, she's being pulled to the mountain ranges. But then I said to Mian, I said, dude, listen. You got this, and again, these elevations are pulled out here, of course, you just show it better. You got air vacuum breeze. It's exactly the white thing what I showed you on the satellite image, because if the mountains stop, the air falls down and they accelerate into that Red Sea, and you get a very negative vacuum cleaner effect of that Sinai. Of course, I was sometimes thinking like, dude, Am I still sharp? Am I not getting crazy? So a friend of mine said, geez, we're engineers. So there you got the Sinai, and there you got the wind speed in the Red Sea. So he said, if you're right, and I drew this map, normally have, uh, this is a little bit uh, nicer drawing, but normally I have the sketches. What I said is that the Sinai, due to her triangle shape and her mountain things, is a vacuum cleaner. She pulls lots of water vapor from the Mediterranean, goes over the mountain, it falls into the Red Sea and creates a large pressure area. So in the summer, you could completely see that wind because it's that vacuum cleaner that blows through the Red Sea that wind out. But in the winter, it's approximately 10 to 15 degrees cooler. And these those drawings you see are monthly averaged winds. And there indeed, you've got the Indian Ocean pressure already coming because that has to do with the Corleone effect. And because I knew that looking at the rotation of the earth, that the water vapor um, would come back. It's the Corleone effect. In the right seasons, it's the pressure of the Indian Ocean. And you can just look at the sailing routes, man. You can look at the wineries. Just That's what I learned from Liray. Holistically look at your history and it will tell you so much. So what we discovered is if you flip the wind, by restoring the wetlands, by getting that 14 Grammy Amian told you about, restoring that vegetation cover, increasing the 14 grams to 21 grams, and what happens then? You reach your cloud condensation level within your mountain range. But if you reach your cloud condensation level, your air implodes. So you start pulling sea breeze or thick, moist air from the sea on a higher level. And then your droplets form. But by condensating, she heats up her surrounding air. 
and those clouds like cauliflowers start to exist till the moment your droplet gets big enough that gravity will win it from your thermal rise and you flip your winds and if you flip your winds you stop the pressure and then if you look at the Corleone effect you know that the Indian Ocean pressure like I showed you there on the right side comes back can you say a little bit uh, repeat the logic on why the wind flips um, direction So if there's no condensation level happening because there's no adding of moisture and there's no adding of moisture because there's no vegetation cover, what happens is you create a low pressure on your land and your wind is just accelerating because you get a low pressure, she goes up and then she falls down. So she's really like a negative breeze. And this is air very close to your land surface. Now, if you recover this ecosystem, you don't need to recover it all, parts of it. What happens is, is because there's vegetation cover, there's water. So if the sun goes up, first your water starts to evaporate. So your temperatures remain much cooler, approximately 10 to 15 degrees cooler. So there's less thermal flow. So if there's less low pressure, there's less wind coming. So the wind is slower and you're adding water vapor because you're evaporating moisture to reduce your temperature. So your water vapor concentration quickly rises up to the 21 grams. Well, if she hits 21 grams, all rule of thumbs, on 2000 meter, you hit, just look at your atmospheric graphs, your condensation level. Now, what happens if you hit 100 percent relative humidity because your air is rising she's cooling down and so you're hitting your relative humidity you condensate but if water vapor condensates to liquid your air implodes so then she starts pulling a breeze on 2000 level or a higher atmospheric level from the ocean so there's no very strong wind close to your land but it's a much smaller gentle wind and then she condensates but if water condensates she heats up the air around her so the droplet starts rising and then she cycles again till she comes bigger and bigger and when she's big enough gravity the acceleration of gravity will win it from your thermal rise she falls down but what happens if a droplet falls down you create a drag force you flip the fucking wind. Are you saying um uh, you're dragging in? No, uh, are you a sailor? Are you a sailor? Google it. You have this amazing. Eight years ago, I guess you had the women boat for the first time sailing the Volvo Ocean Race in the doldrums, and they completely smashed all the seven boats of the men. Why? There's a beautiful interview with with that captain. Because this is how cloud works. If a cloud still is building up, she sucks wind. But if she starts raining, she blows wind. Feel it. Go for yourself into a shower and you will notice. Yeah, I've heard of people being sucked up into winds like paragliding and stuff. Um, so are you saying that when the wind, the cloud condenses... I'm not saying that. It's not me saying. This is just natural physics. Eh? Right, right. I'm just I mean, I'm asking, is, it yeah. the, is the wind being sucked from the Red Sea? So you're drawing in wind... No. The Red Sea? No. 
No. Here you get the cycle. Now what happens is you've got in an ecosystem you have different scales of it. And I don't know if you know the Corleone effect, but due to the rotation of the Earth, your mass will flow to a certain way. That's why in the northern atmosphere, uh, your, your, your sink drains in a different direction than in the southern one. So what we knew is if this wind is gone, if that wind which is being pulled, the vacuum cleaner, from the Mediterranean into the Red Sea, if that pressure is gone, the data is telling you, there you get the pressure of the Indian Ocean coming. So in the right season, she will just push further if this wind is gone. This wind is coming from your vacuum cleaner of your thing. So if you're restoring your water cycle, your pressure away is gone in the Red Sea and all of that moist will come. That's why we have lots of pollens in Constantinople, Athens and other things. Um, where we know they're all biodiversity from the Indian Ocean, but we don't know where to go. I can tell you further. One of my favorite islands is Corsica. But there are many of these islands in the Mediterranean. Go to the southeast side of all of these islands. And they all have the Levant Terrassen. So I was the first time I was there. Like, what the fuck? Levant Terrassen? Why? Why Levant? Oh, because it's known that in the winter, the winds from the Levant, the tectonic plate Levant, which the Sinai is part of, would bring the rain. We know it. It's written all of our history. That's what it does. You completely flip a regional weather system. I was reading Tim Flannery, the book, The Weathermakers, on page 66. That it was in Mesopotamia, that it was Babylon that felt, and everybody was surprised with it. And why did it fell? Because all of a sudden, there was the sun flood. And I'm an engineer. Huh? I'm not at all a scientist. But I was looking, if the system used to be this, and the system flipped to this, you flip the complete wind here. So by building up this pressure, the pressure of the Indian Ocean cannot go into there anymore, and she flipped into Mesopotamia. Sun flood. It's the clouds. It's water vapor. Is it is it the biotic pump you're talking about, that effect? Yeah, but no, the biotic pump is... The, no, Miamian is, is, is different than the biotic pump. They are similar. But Miamian describes a destroyed system, a biotic pump this describes a functional system. But in principle, it's the same. Because the biotic pump says that if you evaporate moisture, which implodes, she pulls the breeze into her. That's why we call it a rainforest. There, there's, there are different phases of that system. Okay, so Miami-on is saying bigger. that... This is, this is the energetic way how... How air flows, how uh, these, this is a larger scale than a biotic pump. This is your earth system scale. So, uh, okay, so uh, let me just uh, try to figure out. So, Milan Milan is saying that you need the evapotranspiration to add to the incoming ocean water vapor to create enough water vapor to create a cloud and create rain. And then, and then also that evapotranspiration is cooling the air um, above the Sinai, right? 
or it's, so it's not quite so hot. So that that cooling effect also affects the wind. Okay. And then um, yeah, but the wind. Yeah, yeah, the, the, two things. Eh? Miamian says more than only what we just said eh? because Miamian was predicting. Wait, let me just get a man. Here, there you got the continental divide. So you got a mountain range, which is the highest there in Spain. It's your backbone. One side it flows to the Mediterranean, one side it flows to the Atlantic. What Miamian saw was that those stupid Europeans were drying their swamps. And because they were drying the swamps, they were completely destroying the, the evaporation required to reach your cloud levels on your continental divide. And when they were stopping it, they didn't reach the 21 gram, but for example, reached the 19. And with it, it was drier, so the wind speed due to the increase of temperature was accelerating, and they bounced into each other, and the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, and they were transported to a higher level. And there the water accumulated on a level of three to five kilometers, where she's out of reach of your biosphere, so where she can normally generate. That's why in Spain, you have all of these higher clouds. And what he figured out was that the water was accumulating for five days, and then was picked up by a low pressure system coming from England, just up north, the Pyrenees. The, the low pressure systems can break through the atmospheric layering, pick up the moist, and they would drop it in Eastern Europe to com completely create floods. That was what Miamian was saying. The five B-shaped water transportation, um, uh, what caused desertification in Spain. And cause floodings in Eastern Africa. And what I what, what I came up to his place, I said, and, and the weird thing is we have very similar sketches. Um, um, I was actually saying, listen, up in the Sinai, I don't have two very big watersheds, your Atlantic and your Mediterranean, that build up kinetic energy that bounce to each other and transport it to a higher level. But I have a very, or I have a relatively large one, the northern one, and a very short south one. So that south one can never build up enough pressure to push it to a higher level, but she gets overrun by the northern part. So we have a much more water vapor distribution problem and not to a vertical level, but to a horizontal uh, um, different encatchment basins. And that's what's happening at our place. So we're restoring an encatchment basin. So the water is not in the right seasons, losing anymore to the Red Sea. No, she's flowing back into the Nile Valley. Mm. So the reduction okay. of your water vapor that causes all of these bad weather effects is now injected again in Northern Africa, so we, where she can start increasing water vapor and step by step stop Wait. their situation. Wait, are you saying you're going to lessen the amount of hurricanes by what you're doing in the Sinai? As an engineer, I'm 100% saying that. Wow. Okay, cool. So, so, so there's a lot of uh, ripple effects. So basically, by regreening the Sinai, you're also going to bring back rain, and you're going to change the wind patterns, and potentially also lessen the amount of hurricanes in other parts of the world. Again, let me, let me, let me say this. Because I always have to be careful if you say it like this. I cannot, 
the ripple effects, the potential ripple effects are massive. Because that's well, as I was discussing with Lire, you can also explain why Northern Africa or Northern China is there getting decertified. But we don't know. The only thing we know is how it used to be. We know we can restore that cyanide technically. So we know we're going to cause massive ripple effects. What exactly there will be, I cannot say. But the narrative is so strong that now already after six years, we got a whole independent group of uh, promo, um, how do you call it, PhDs, uh, working on the topic. Nobody can tackle it. We cannot prove it. Uh, but after six years, nobody can say it's not true. So it's it's so big that, that don't we don't have any computer models being able to model this. Um, um, of course, we have global models, but they're more climate models and not attached to weather. And here, what we do is we're sucking in two different scales of numerical models. So what we're doing is what we do know, and we just now signed a cooperation agreement with the Egyptian government um, to hopefully start dredging now within June. Is what we know, the moment we start restoring the wetlands, we will see a change in water vapor distribution over the Sinai. So the good thing is, and that's what we learned from the Lus that's what we learned from all the permaculture people. You learn by doing. Start with it, measuring it, do it. But it does give a full global potential solution. Not that by fixing the Sinai you fix everything, but by fixing the Sinai you create an opportunity to regreen all Northern Africa, Middle East, and Northern China. And that's what we normally, that's what the message of the weather makers always has been. If we focus on the Sinai to bring together our destructive industries to restore this ecosystem, we create light in the tunnel. Because I believe, as an engineer, that this is the way forward to fix climate change. Yes, we have to do something about pollution. Yes, we have to do something about smart ways of sustainable energy. But ecological, planetary restoration has to be by far number one on anything what we're going to do in the nearby future to survive as a species. Mm. I, I, so when you regreen, when you get more rains in the Sinai, does that water vapor also then spread eastward to the Middle East, like Israel, Jordan, and then up into Asia, like some of that water vapor um, and create Not the cycle stops. How can I easily say it? If it's a desert, she pulls a lot of moisture out of that Mediterranean. If you read greener, you stop the loss of that water out of the Mediterranean and catchment basin. Due to the fact you start to regreen the Sinai, you cool off that local temperatures. So the increase of moist will create an edge where you will start increasing more water vapor. So yes, if you regreen the Sinai, you will get more rain in Israel, Lebanon, and, and the eastern parts of Egypt. And then if you have more rain there, you can re-green that more, and then your edge is shifting up to your side. And yes, then you can start thinking of the whole of North Africa and the Middle East. But this is 
not weird because this is how we know that the whole system became a desert anyway like Xavier Rutt used to say we have seen this all before man the desert I don't know if you know I figured it out later on you can read that in our perspective paper on site um, she became a desert many many times and re-green many many times so what 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 caused it uh to become a desert the last time it was uh, when was this you're saying a time of jesus or like four thousand years ago something it, it I, the, the last time so, so now what you have is normally but this is <laughs> that's what we write um uh, in our perspective paper you're very much challenging the current reasoning way they say that, that the Sahara becomes a desert or becomes green again normally they say it's the procession of the axis of the earth right because she shares every 22,000 or 25,000 years. Um, uh, you know it, does you? The, the, right, yeah, the, uh -huh, yeah. And that caused the climat uh, climatological change. The last African human period, which was approximately ending um, somewhere four or 3,000 years before Christ, ended very rapidly in 100 to 200 years. And if I'm as an engineer just looking at the data, I can tell you that's not. Yes, the procession has a very profound impact on those climatological changes, but it's not the, the, the main driven reason why that ended. It's human destruction. And, um, and, and that's what many other researchers are now saying as well, that could it be? Because that's what we're saying as well with China. We know that the Levant decided to chop down the forest for hunting grounds and using the forest as a fuel to so start deforestating it. Um, um, and we know there used to be a forest, I think, 125,000 years before Christ. And then step by step, the society started to grow. And we started, um, um, the, the, the savannas to overgraze. And when we started to overgraze, the whole um, system collapsed. Now, what we're saying is, could it be that if that Sinai has such a profound impact on the climate, could it be? That there is not a polarization in the discussion. Oh no, but parts of the Sahara are naturally desertified, and parts are human-induced climate change. Could it be that human-induced climate change has a much bigger impact than ever thought of if you simply look at the weather system? And that's a pitch. I'm not going to say here that everything I say is true, um, um, because it's so big, it's almost too big to grasp. But what we're saying is. Could there be a complete different narrative behind climate change in, in, in the history of our planet? Because if you then start thinking of what ecological function does to water vapor distribution, you can see a complete different pattern occurring in history than currently the very shallow narrative that the industrialization caused climate change, which is bullshit. It didn't. The desert was there. Why was the desert there? Because we destroyed an ecosystem. Mm. It helped us. Because when the desert came there, we were heating up the planet and we pushed away in Iceland. But now we're living on the fucking edge. So now we're going to do exactly the other way around. And we can do it. It's not yeah. difficult. The question is, do we want to? And the other question is, can we work together? Right. Well, there are climatologists and hydroclimatologists are now beginning to see the connection between, you know, climate patterns and the vegetation and land use. And I'm wondering, is there 
uh, some, you know, and some of them run these global climate models. Are you but able scientists to never find a solution. Scientists optimize. Right. I, I was just wondering whether, like, you could plug in, like, if you regreen some of this cyanide into their global climate models. And see what I told you, we have a full, yeah, but, but first of all, the current models are bullshit. They're not good. You got good weather models, the WARF models, we use them as well. And you got the good global climate models, but they're not fitting in good at the moment at all. I've got a full independent wet service. We got a full team working on that. Uh, but you see the struggles of science. Science cannot, if you feed computer models, which data out of a negative cycle going down, they cannot predict the system how she will turn up if you change her. That's the problem with the current data. That's why I personally, I don't really believe in, in EA in, or IA, artificial intelligence in that sense. Um, because you're always feeding her with data and then she's very good at finding a problem. That's science or solution. But you need to be creative to see the different changes. Like 35 years after they started to regreen the Lusperto, they now say, yeah, no, no, we see a little bit of rain more. Come on. I've been there, speak to the local people. It's raining there way more. But science is afraid. We created a kind of scientific monster, which on the never sees the solution as strong as she is and never see the problem as bad as she is. Because we're talking about carbon dioxide. Everybody that really thinks a Tesla has anything to do with the solution for climate change, come on. It's a beautiful car, don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing the brand here, but it nothing has to do. We, we're walking a dead end. We're focusing on carbon where water is by far the most worst greenhouse gas, much further than methane. It was Mihamian explaining that water vapor on three kilometers height is 47 times more worse um, um, than carbon dioxide, twice as much as methane. So why the hell are we not restoring water cycles? ASAP because the cool thing is you create water you create food you create biodiversity you create stable climates what if it all doesn't turn to work out if something we're good at and species chopping down forests so if it all would be false you still have resources so it's crazy why we don't do it it's crazy that our Dutch government our prime minister says no, we're going to pump carbon dioxide in an empty gas field. Come on. Which lobby are you listening to? Wake the hell up. And that's a little bit, and I'm not blaming at all any scientists, but I'm blaming the system we created uh, where we're just walking at that end. IPCC does beautiful work, but we're way worse than they're predicting. And they're already predicting they were doing bad. And what are we going to do? We're going to build solar panels, windmills, from which materials? We don't have it. We know it. Ecological, planetary regeneration. It's a pretty cool part. Cool. And how far um, are you along with the Egyptian government and in this project? Where is it right now? First, What's the timeline? First deal signed on the COP. So we signed now, um, um, after six years, a PPP uh, together with Suez Canal. Uh, but the prime minister were there, six uh, six ministers were there. So we're now, um, uh, they already start dredging, but they're um, um, having some problems. So so we're just 
wrapping up the whole work and I will travel up there in December, start doing the first workshops um, and, and supporting them on, on, on the on the work they're now doing, start to monitoring with them. And hopefully somewhere in June 2023, we'll start dredging the early works together with them and starting to build the pilot for the regreening of the desert. And uh, it's a 30 year plan. So um, I can finally say after six years coming up with this funny idea, um, that we can now really start doing it. And we are talking with the Dutch government, with the French, with the Spanish, with the Belgium, all to financially really start supporting um, this project. Because sadly, sad, Egypt is very much hit by the war in the Ukraine due to the food. Um, um, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm happy to say that um, Europe um, really wants to support it. And don't get me wrong, it's also the good, good for Europe. Less refugees, more work for the industries and more potential for green hydrogen. And uh, um, it's so much needed for Egypt because they're in such a vulnerable position with their rapid growing population and their instability of, um, of the region. Mm. Cool. Well, this is a truly amazing project, very ambitious. And like, I mean, it, and it kind of uses, it pulls together so many different things, right? From soil science to lake, wetland science to meteorology hydroclimatology Again, many of those people came to us yeah? so it's, so it's, i have to be humble to 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 all the people that uh, supported it yeah no yeah but but that's absolutely true yeah it's it's appealing um, it's appealing narrative yeah cool well thank you so much for taking your time out to describe this project and yeah and all the best like i really hope this i mean this is quite an amazing project with so many ripple effects on like yeah. you can find quite a lot of um stuff on our website um all what we do will be um uh, uh for everybody yeah? everybody can start using it from the moment we um, um we're there to share it um, um so you can google it um uh, yeah, yeah go to the weathermakers.nl uh and otherwise we will um yeah we'll keep you updated with the progress we make okay cool all right, all right. thank you so much yeah. <laughs> Okay, ciao. Be well, cheers.